Well, we open God's word this morning. Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we humbly come before you this morning seeking your help and your grace. We thank you that you are the God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you that you are eternally, covenantally committed to us because of your Son. And we ask now as we look to hear the voice of your Son through the Word of God, that you would open our minds, humble our hearts, enable us to receive the implanted Word which is able to save our souls. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, I want to thank Pastor Art for preaching last week on a uh, crucial topic that can uh, hit, a, hit us a little close to home, but, uh, but is necessary nonetheless and uh, enabled uh, my family to, uh, for me to have a week off from sermon preparation, which gave me a little extra time with the family last week, so we're thankful for that. But as we come to God's Word this morning, uh, we are now a few weeks into having heard the awful news of what came out of Israel. As you know, on October 7th of this month, the terrorist group Hamas invaded Israel and slaughtered over a thousand people in a brutal, barbaric attack. This was the single greatest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust. And the reports just show how evil it truly was. As you know, Israel has now responded with airstrikes. It's preparing for a ground invasion into the Gaza Strip. This has and will result in more loss of life. And we grieve over every life that is lost. But we believe that Israel has the right to defend itself against this terrorist organization Hamas has stated very clearly its anti-Semitic ends that it seeks to wipe Israel off the face of the map and they won't stop until every Jewish person is killed. Hamas also seems to be blamed for the death of many of the Palestinians there within their territory for they put their headquarters in hospitals and in apartment buildings so that when Israel strikes them, the international press shows dead civilians. It seems they do not work for the good of their own people. Now, these events are troubling at multiple levels. And as I said, we grieve the loss of all life, both Israel's, Palestinians, Americans, and of all other nationalities, because every single person is made in the image of God. There is not one nationality, one ethnic group that has superiority over another. They are all equal in the eyes of the Lord, and we grieve when anyone is killed. And so we pray. We pray that the bloodshed will end. We pray that Jesus' name might be proclaimed in all of this. For both the Palestinians and Israel officially both reject the Lord in terms of their official stance as a people. Now we know that there are believers in both sides of this conflict and so we pray for them as well. And we pray, as David instructs us in Psalm 122, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we don't know where these things will go. We don't know what will unfold in the next 24 hours, what will unfold in the next weeks, months, years. And so we need to just simply watch and to pray. But as we have our attentions glued to the headlines and we look for what's taking place in the Middle East, it tends to cause us to think about what is God doing what is his plan for the world? Where are things headed? It can produce big questions in our mind about God's prophetic plan for this earth. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' plans for the end of the age. Jesus, you see, is not done with us. He's not done with Israel. He's not done with this earth, this cosmos. He has plans that he still must carry out. And he wanted his disciples to understand what those plans were so that their faith would be unshakable regarding the end of the age. And so believer, this morning, as we look at Jesus' words, we can rest in Jesus' plans for the future. We can rest in what he has said 
and in his word, we can be at peace about the future of this planet, about the future of this age, because Jesus is in control. Now, we've been looking at, for, at the end times according to Jesus in Luke 21, and we come now to the section in that chapter that, where Jesus outlines his return at the end of the age. And so I invite you to turn there, if you're not there already, to Luke chapter 21, the Gospel of Luke chapter 21. And we've been seeing in this chapter how Jesus is answering some questions by the disciples. They asked when the temple would be destroyed and what would be the signs of his coming at the end of the age. And so that subject matter is what Jesus addresses in Luke 21. The destruction of the temple and his coming and the end of the age. But in order to answer these questions, Jesus has to speak of the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place in the first century and uh, the events that would take place at the end of the age. It's got to span that whole time because that's what the questions that were asked. And we've been deciphering the difference between those two as we've been going through Jesus' teaching. We concluded that verses 8 through 11 refer to the first three and a half years of the tribulation, future tribulation period. This tribulation period is the 70th week of prophecy given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Seven years in total. These verses 8 through 11 describe the first three and a half years. But then verse 12, it's said before all those things take place. So it's a rewinding of the clock before all of that. There are some things that will take place, most notably persecution. And so we saw how the verses 12 through 19 speak about the persecution that the disciples and the church would receive there after Christ had left the earth in the first century. But then the last time we were, were together looking at this passage, we looked at verses 20 through 24. And there we saw that Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place several decades later in the first century. But verse 24 specifically says that Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles. And that has been exactly the case for 2,000 years. And he also gives a time when that trampling will be finished. When Jerusalem will no longer be trampled and it will be totally at peace. And he says it will be when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The end of verse 24. That's when Jerusalem will be at peace. That's when they will no longer be trampled underfoot. And when that happens is when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled is when verse 25 begins to take place, when it will commence. And so here in 24 to 25, we have the connection between the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in the first century and the events of the future end time period, the return of Christ. They are separated by this time, the simple word of until. It's going to be this way, Jerusalem downtrodden until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. Matthew and Mark also help us with the timing of this passage as well. In their parallel accounts, they tell us the events that are described here in Luke in verse 25 and following. He says that they happen immediately after the tribulation of those days. Immediately after the tribulation, in other words, after the, that 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period that will take place in the future, we know as the Great Tribulation, immediately after that time is when these events, here in Luke, starting in Luke 21-25, begin. But the scene changes. He was talking about Jerusalem and Judea, now he's going to be talking about the whole world. He was talking about this destruction coming to Jerusalem and Judea, and now he's talking about destruction and judgment that is coming upon the whole earth. This will affect people all over the planet. And so let's read now our passage before us, verses 25 through 33, and get to see the, the details here of Jesus' second coming. So follow along as I read verse, beginning in verse 25 of Luke 21. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. 
Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here in these verses before us, I want to show you six things, six facts about the second coming so that we would be confident about what is to occur at the end of the age. Jesus wants to ensure, instill confidence in his disciples and therefore we need to have confidence in his words as well that what Jesus says will come to pass and we therefore can have certainty about the future. We can have certainty about the end of the age. It doesn't have to be a mystery. It doesn't have to be a big question mark. Six facts about his second coming. The first fact that Jesus reveals about his second coming is this. His second coming will be preceded by cosmic signs. And we see this in verse 25. His second coming will be preceded by cosmic signs. It says, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. There in verse, beginning of verse 25. Now as we've been going through this passage, we've been referencing uh, those who would take what we call a preterist interpretation of this chapter and believe that everything here has already happened. That it was future to Jesus, but it's history to us. And they believe that these verses continue to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, as I will make clear in our exposition this morning, I do not believe that this, interpret this interpretation makes sense of the biblical data. And this assessment begins here with the opening line in verse 25. Jesus says that there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. Matthew states it this way, similarly, but added some, adds some detail. He says in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So Jesus tells us that when he returns, there are going to be signs that are so cataclysmic that it's going to be affected, it's going to affect the, the lights in the sky, the celestial lights. The sun will be darkened, and once we know the sun is darkened, the moon cannot shine since the moon only reflects the sun. And it tells us also that the stars will fall from heaven. That may be that they fall to earth, it may be that we simply see them streaking across the sky, they fall in that sort of way. Uh, it seems like it would probably be like a, a major meteor shower that would be taking place. But the point is this, that creation itself is signaling God's judgment at that time. Creation itself is, as it were, falling apart. The order that God had placed at creation was now unraveling. This is also what is meant in our passage at the end of verse 26. He says, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What are the powers of the heavens? The powers of the heavens are the powerful lights that are in the sky. The stars, the sun, the moon, they'll be shaken, they'll be turned off. And that's the point. God, when it comes to the final drama of human history, is going to turn off the lights. It's going to be dark in a literal, physical way. He literally, physically brought darkness upon this earth in other acts of judgment. Think about when he brought judgment upon the Egyptians, the ninth plague it says, so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Or when you think about God brought darkness upon this planet, when he judged sin, when Christ was on the cross. Luke 23 says, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. And so... Two, at the end of the age, when the wrath of God is unleashed upon all humanity through the tribulation, it will culminate in a final darkness that God will bring. But Jesus here is not telling us something new, actually. This notice that notification that there's going to be darkness and that the celestial lights are going to be turned out uh, has already been told to us by the prophets in many places. Jesus is simply confirming their word. For example, Isaiah chapter 13 verses 9 through 11 says this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, 
cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Or take Isaiah 34 verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now those who take a preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' words, say that these words and the Old Testament words that I've quoted to you, including others, are figurative, that they don't describe actual occurrences in the sun, moon, and stars, but rather they're symbolic descriptions of the downfall of human kings and leaders. Now, I don't believe that the Old Testament descriptions nor Jesus' words here are an indication of such interpretation. There's nothing in the context that would dissuade us from think, seeing these as literal uh, occurrences in the heavens. A straightforward reading makes the most sense. And so we see, first of all, that when Christ comes, the lights in the heavens that were given to order the day and night will be turned off. The, the earth will be plunged into darkness. And this will provide, as I'll argue, a visual backdrop for the glorious appearing of our Lord. So the first act of Christ's second coming, the first fact here that he gives us that we can be confident of is that his coming will be preceded by cosmic signs. But there's a second fact we need to see in this text, and that is his second coming will strike fear in the nations. It'll strike fear in the nations. And we see this in verse 25 and 26. I mean, think about it. If suddenly the sun was to go dark instantly and all the lights were to go out, how would this earth feel? Wouldn't it be terrifying to suddenly realize at a time when the sun should be shining that it's not and all of a sudden we're plunged in deep darkness where we cannot even see the hand in front of our face? Terrifying. That's exactly what Jesus describes in verse 25 and 26. On the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Now we know the moon is responsible for the tides. And so you can just imagine that if, if the celestial bodies are affected, the moon in particular, that it's going to have an effect upon the earth. And here Jesus notes the sea, the roaring of the sea and the waves. Now, mankind has always been afraid of the ocean. It's, it's vast, it's deep, it's overpowering. We feel very small upon it. We can't control it. And so it's been uh, part, you'll see it even in Old Testament literature, that there's great fear as it relates to the sea and the ocean. But here, it is tossed up. And it's contributing to the fear upon the earth. But what's the real fear? Is it just they're seeing big waves? No, they're mainly a fear of, afraid of what the middle of verse 26 says, of what is coming on the world. This is a summary phrase that refers to the judgment that would come at the hand of God. For what would cause people all over the planet, billions of people, to suddenly be in a chaotic panic? What would cause people everywhere, in every place, to be fainting with fear and foreboding, passing out, because they're so afraid of what is about to take place. They know something terrible is coming. They will fa face the fierce and awesome wrath of a holy God. God had promised in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. God has promised that he will judge the earth. But he's also indicated how he's gonna do it, who he's gonna do it through. In Acts 17, Paul tells us that God is gonna judge the world through Jesus. Acts 17 verse 31 says, he, that is God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
the earth, mankind can know that judgment will come through Jesus. We can have assurance of that because he's raised Jesus from the dead. He's alive and well, and he will be God's instrument of bringing judgment on this earth. And so when Jesus returns, he will bring swift and severe judgment. Of course, when he actually appears, the earth would have been living through seven years of God's wrath being poured out already. There will be great distress. People will be scared. People will be dying. But there will be such fear that will be built up upon the planet. I find it interesting to think about fear and fainting with fear in light of the Halloween season that we find ourselves in, our society seems to be fascinated with fear, in fact, entertain themselves with fear through horrific movies or whatever else. They try to scare themselves and they get fun out of doing so and watching other people get scared. And yet, this world does not yet know the greatest fear. They play around with fear because they think that they're, they're okay after the movie ends. But the greatest fear will come when they sense that the righteous anger of God is coming upon them and there's no way to escape. It'll, the, this fear will come upon them when they know that they deserve the righteous judgment of God for what, for what they have done. And they realize there's no way to escape. So friends, I can't pass this point without seeing here a solemn reminder of the judgment that awaits each individual who rejects Christ. This is yet another reminder that indeed God is Lord over this earth. He is the one that determines all things, the end from the beginning, and he has determined that all those who continue in their sin and reject his son will receive wrath one day. And so if you're here today and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you remained hardened in your sins, setting the agenda for your life. You want to control your life. The solemn warning from Scripture is that if you remain unchanged and unrepentant, there is wrath that is reserved for you. Listen to what John chapter 3, verse 36 says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. But you can be saved from the wrath of God this morning. God, the fact that you are alive and well today means that there is patience. There is grace for you. God has provided a way through the very one that he's, he's gonna bring the judgment through his son. He provides salvation through his son. But it requires that each one of us repent and, b- and believe in Jesus Christ, his son. You see, days after Jesus spoke these words, he was going to be nailed to a cross. He was nailed to a cross. He didn't deserve to die, but he laid down his life willingly at obedience to his father so that sinners like you and me can be forgiven of our sins. Why can we be forgiven? Not just because God decided to like, oh, forget it, don't worry about it. No, he paid for our sins. God's wrath was poured out on his son so that all who place their faith in him can show up at the gates of heaven with a clean record because it's all been paid in full. And all we've had to do is humble our hearts and say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust in your sacrifice. Forgive me. Jesus took the wrath on the cross so we don't have to feel the wrath in the future. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so each one of us, men and women, boys and girls, must cry out to God asking that he would save us. And I ask you, have you done that? Has there ever been a point in your life when you have cried out to God to save you from your sin, to save you from the wrath you know you deserve? Have you said, God, please forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. Please rescue me. Please save me and your son. Know that he loves to answer those requests. He is a God abounding in love, a God of salvation. 
So we've seen the fact that Jesus' return will be preceded by cosmic events. We've seen, secondly, that it'll bring fear in the nations. But thirdly, the third fact that we need to see in this text is that his return will be glorious. Jesus wants us to see and to understand that his return is, is not going to be a little whisper. His return is going to be a glorious return. And we see this in verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Let's remember the context. The sky is black. God has shut out the sun. He shut out the moon. The stars are falling. And it's at that moment that one will break through the heavens with great power and great glory, shining like the sun. Jesus' statement here alludes to Daniel chapter 7. In fact, your translation may have some of these words in kind of small caps to allude to that Old Testament reference. Daniel 7 is the passage from which Jesus takes his title, the Son of Man. And the important verses for us this morning are found in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And they read this way. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel here, in his vision, sees this one like a son of man going before the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, and then God gives him an everlasting kingdom. Now, by alluding to these verses and referencing them in Luke chapter 21 and saying that they will be, you will see the Son of Man coming on the cloud with great power and glory, Jesus is stating that when he returns, he will be the regal, kingly Son of Man who has received the kingdom. When he returns, the world will see him for what he truly is. That is what I believe the text makes very clear. Verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. Now those who have a, take a preterist interpretation of this text don't believe this has anything to do with the future second coming, but has to do with uh, what happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That this text has already been fulfilled, the coming of the Son of Man in power and great glory. They argue that because in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is not coming to earth, but he's going before the Ancient of Days in heaven, so this cannot teach a physical return of Christ to earth. It must mean something about him going into heaven, some, somehow connected with his ascension. And so they interpret this to mean that Jesus came spiritually in the role of judge to execute judgment on Israel. He came spiritually through the Roman army and destroyed Jerusalem and was there spiritually even though he couldn't be seen physically. And so as that destruction took place, Israel was to spiritually see with the eyes of their heart that Jesus was coming before the Ancient of Days in heaven. The destruction of of the Romans, in other words, was to be a sign of Jesus' heavenly enthronement. Now, I disagree with this interpretation, as you know, for several reasons, but primarily because it seems to go against the natural reading of the text here. It seems fairly clear that the people that are mentioned in verse 25 and 26 are then going to see, and the, the immediate implication would be the see with their eyes. It's the word for seeing. But also, it seems that there's more than just Israel going on here. This isn't just Romans, the Romans and Israel. This is about the world. It, verse 25 and 26 talks about the earth and the nations and what is coming on the world. We're talking about of something of a broader scale than simply something, uh, a, a, an army advancing on Jerusalem in 70 AD. They involve the whole planet. And I would say that Daniel chapter 7, even though the Son of Man is being presented before the Ancient of Days, that doesn't mean that Jesus can't use similar language to say that very one who was presented before the Ancient of Days on a cloud can also then come to the earth in the same manner. 
He's received the kingdom and now he's coming to take possession of it. Jesus' point is to say, you know that guy that's spoken of back in Daniel chapter 7? Yeah, I'm that guy. I am that one. I am the son of man. And though right now, Jesus could say as he's speaking this, I don't have great power and glory. I'm not uh, smiting the nations. But know there will be a day when I will fulfill that. And particularly what we need to see here is that by invoking this image, Jesus is making a claim to divinity. You see, in the Old Testament, a cloud was a symbol of divinity. You can think of your Old Testament history. Think of the pillar of the cloud that led the Israelites to the wilderness. Think of uh, Moses on Mount Sinai when he asked to see God's glory. It says in Exodus 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Or think of the cloud that covered the tabernacle and filled it with the glory of the Lord. Which, or the same th- phenomenon that happened with the temple when Solomon built it years later. The cloud represented the presence of God. But additionally, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, talks about the clouds being the chariot of the Lord. He rides the clouds like a chariot. Psalm 104, verse 3 says the, cloud, uh, the clouds are God's chariot. Rather, that was Psalm 104. Psalm 19 talks about God riding on a swift cloud. And so God, clouds uh, seem to be God's majestic means of transport. And let's not forget Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the text that talks about Jesus' ascension to earth, uh, from earth to heaven. It says he went up in the clouds and the men are all standing there looking up and the angels show up and say, why are you still looking up there? But I promise you, Jesus will return the exact same way that he departed. He went up in clouds, he's going to return in clouds, in literal clouds. And so when Jesus says that he, the Son of Man, will be coming on a cloud with power and great glory, he's making a very clear statement of deity for those who know their Old Testament. You'll notice in the passage we read in Daniel 7, it says, what do all the peoples of the earth, all the nations and tribes and languages, what do they do before that son of man? It says they serve him. Could be translated worship him. This son of man is not just an ordinary man. This is a divine man. He receives worship. He will come to earth with all of the authority of God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, because that's exactly who he is. And so friends, against the backdrop of man's sinful uh, wickedness that rises to this great level for God to judge and in light of the backdrop of the lights of the heavens being put out, the appearance of Jesus Christ will be absolutely majestic. He will appear from heaven with power and great glory. I believe it will be the Shekinah glory of God that will shine around him. When he returns, it'll be unlike anything this world has ever seen. To the enemies of Christ and of Israel, this will be terrifying. But to the saints of Christ on the earth, this will be the best news ever. This description here in this scene reminds me of a scene in The Lord of the Rings, the second movie, The Two Towers, for those who have seen it. The forces of Rohan, it's a very dark scene. They're getting battled by the forces of evil. They're, they're trapped back in Helm's Deep. It all looks lost, all looks hopeless. They're desperate, they're about to be defeated, and so they decide to ride out one final charge, knowing that they will likely lose. But then, as they charge out, high on the hillside, with the first light of dawn, is Gandalf the White, as he comes over the hill, and he's leading the charge of armies as they come down to defeat the foe. The glory of the light shining in the midst of the darkness. The midst of the darkness of, of evil, the midst of the darkness of battle is when Gandalf arrived. Now, I wonder where Tolkien got that imagery, huh? I have to imagine he got it straight from the scriptures. But friends, right now, we live in a dark time when the world continues to turn back on the Lord. This world despises Jesus. At best, they treat him as, a, as a, uh, an interesting religious teacher of the first century. They don't see any glory in him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the, the, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. 
He is seen as weak and ultimately inconsequential. But Jesus reminds us here with these words, and we must remember what our Lord has told us, that there will come a day when our king will return. And his regal glory that we all know and we all see with our eyes of faith will become sight. And all will see it. It'll be unmistakable. It'll be undeniable. His power will be put on display for all to see. And in that day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, we can be certain that these events will take place. These are not fanciful tales or myths. These are factual prophecies from the living God and we need not doubt that our king will return. But there's a fourth fact about his return that we need to see and we can be certain of and that is his second coming will bring complete salvation to his saints. Complete salvation to the saints. Verse 28 Look at it with me. It says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. How could, we ask ourselves, how could the redemption of the believer be at the second coming of Christ? I thought I was already redeemed, a believer might say. And don't we sing, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb? Yes, of course we do. But Paul in Romans 8 tells us that there's a sense in which we eagerly await for our redemption. And then in Ephesians 4.30, he says that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And so this means that believer, even though your, your sins have been forgiven, they've been dealt with by the blood of Jesus on the cross, there is a complete and final salvation, a complete redemption that you are still waiting for because we still groan with sin in our mortal bodies, do we not? We still battle sin each and every day. We still live in this fallen world. We want to be redeemed from all of this. We want to be redeemed from all the futility and from all the sin, from all the suffering. And so we await that final day of redemption. And thankfully, as Paul says, we are sealed for that day. It's going to happen. We will be completely set free when Christ returns. Now, I believe that when Jesus returns in the second coming that we've just been speaking of, The church from this age, you and I, will have already been raptured to heaven before the tribulation period and we will be returning with Christ as his saints. And so I think this exhortation here is particularly given to those who become Christians during the tribulation period and are alive at his coming. That they were not raptured with the church at the beginning of the tribulation, but during that time, Revelation makes very clear that there are those who are returning to Jesus. And there, as it nears the end and the day gets dark, they then begin to see these things happen and they can lift their heads up. Don't look to their circumstances, but to begin to look to the horizon to see if Christ will return. They are not to lose hope. And this is going to be especially true for Israel. On that day of Jesus' return, it's going to be a day of salvation for the nation of Israel. Zechariah tells us that at this moment, at the end of the tribulation period, there is going to be a, the nations altogether are going to be amassed around Jerusalem to, to battle against it. Zechariah 12, verses 2 and 3 says this, Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Also in Zechariah 14, talking about the same battle, it says, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. It'll be a dark hour for the world, but it'll be a particularly dark hour for Israel. She will be down to her last stand, It will begin to look hopeless like they are about to be obliterated. But then Yahweh will appear in the person of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12 verse 9 says, On that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then chapter 14 says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights in a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. A few verses later, verse 9, it says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And finally, verse 11, And it shall be inhabited, that is Jerusalem, 
For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Yahweh himself will come and stand upon the Mount of Olives. He will rescue Israel. He will fight for Israel. He will defeat the nations that come against her. This emphatically did not happen in 70 AD. The, the, the prophecy of Zechariah 12, the prophecy of Zechariah 14 was not fulfilled in 70 AD. The Lord himself did not fight for Israel. Israel was destroyed. They were not rescued. And yet what these passages talk about is a very clear rescue in which the Lord descends and then he's king over all the earth. Therefore, this is a still a future day. But, but take note, Jesus is not going to fight for an unregenerate Israel. In other words, take a snapshot of Israel right now. Does Israel know Jesus? Is Israel waiting for Jesus, wanting for him to return? No. There's a partial hardening that's come upon Israel. And so, Jesus is not going to take their side as long as they reject him. And that's why in chapter 12, that Zechariah tells us that God's spirit will change the nation when they put their eyes upon him. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And this will fulfill and accords with what Paul says in Romans 11, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Friends, in 70 AD, Jerusalem received destruction because they rejected the Messiah. They are still in rebellion against the living God today. They still reject Jesus Christ, and our heart continues to go out for them. We continue to pray for them. But there will be a future day when, as a nation, she will experience salvation. And this salvation of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles, on that future day is so certain that Jesus tells you, when you begin to see these signs, lift up your heads because it's coming. It's coming. You can bank it. And so church, this is a reminder to us that we won't be free from our troubles until that redemption day. We continue to, to groan under the weight of sin now. And that it is at his return that we will receive our resurrection body. We will no longer experience sin or suffering. And we look forward to the day when that redemption comes to total completion. And we can totally, completely count on it. Now there's a fifth fact that we can be certain of that we need to see in this text. And that is, fifthly, his second coming will bring the kingdom. His second coming will bring the kingdom. And we see this in verses 29 through 31. Jesus has been giving lots of uh, instruction. He's telling what's coming. And here it says in verse 29, he told them a parable. And he says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you, say, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. This is a pretty basic fact, right? We know that once the trees start sprouting, we know that what's coming around the corner, that they're going to go into full leaf, there's going to, uh, summer is coming. And so he takes that analogy, that simple uh, agricultural analogy, and he says, verse 31, so also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near, or it could be the kingdom of God is at hand. Where have we heard that before? Well, that was the message that Jesus and John the Baptist proclaimed when their ministries first began. They began proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near. Same word used here. And so what happened? If they're proclaiming it was near or at hand at the beginning of the ministry, why is Jesus saying that in that future day, that's when it's going to be near or at hand? I thought it was already near and at hand. Well, as we've been tracing through the gospel of Luke, we've seen that the king has presented himself to Israel, has said, listen, if you embrace me, the kingdom will come. I'm able to do the miracles. I am the rightful king, Messiah. But because of their rejection, the kingdom was postponed. It was postponed. Luke 19, verse 11 and following, Jesus made this very clear through the parable of the nobleman. I encourage you to look that up later. 
Jesus indicates here that there is going to be a time in the future when the kingdom will be near again. The kingdom will be arriving when he returns. The kingdom requires that the king be present. In fact, the parallel passage in Matthew and Mark that describe the same parable of the fig tree putting on leaves and all the rest, he says, so when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. The connection of the presence of Christ and the kingdom of God is unmistakable. That is when the kingdom is near. Now, is Jesus enthroned in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father? Absolutely, amen and amen. But he has his own throne that he must, he must fill and he must sit on, and it's the throne of David that is here on earth. He is the rightful king, and he's waiting until the Father gives him word for him to return. You could draw a parallel with King David. You remember that he was anointed as king of Israel, but did he immediately sit on the throne? No, he was chased around the wilderness because Saul was still on the throne. He would have to wait to actually fulfill that role. So too with Jesus. He is the rightful king. He deserves to be king over this earth, but he is not yet fulfilling his dominion over the whole earth physically, powerfully, righteously. So friends, don't lose hope. We see a lot of evil in our day, but we know it will not forever continue this way. Jesus will come to make things right. And we look to that day with joyful expectation. Titus chapter two says that it is the coming of the Lord, it is his glorious appearing that is our blessed hope as the church. We hope for him and his return. But finally, there's a sixth fact that we need to see in this text that Jesus wants us to know, and that is simply that his second coming will happen. His second coming will happen. And this is, you could say, well, haven't we already been saying that? Yeah, we have. We're just wrapping it all up here in these verses. Jesus makes it emphatic here. Verse 32, there's the phrasing, truly I say to you, and then you see in verse 33, he talks about my words will not pass away. He's making a very declarative statement about what he's saying, about what he's telling them, and he's telling them that he has the authority to make the predictions that he's already made. Now, verse 32 has been used by those who take a preterist interpretation of this passage as their guiding light or the mold in which they, I would say, they have tried to force all the events of this chapter because they read this generation in verse 32 as the generation of the first century, the generation of the disciples. And therefore, all these things have to happen while that generation was still alive. And I can sympathize with that understanding. But as we've seen as we've gone through the text. The context of what's going on in this chapter does not allow for all of these events to happen in the first century. They simply did not happen. Some of them happened in the first century and we've looked at those, but some of them await a future day. And so I believe the best way to understand verse 32 is to see that this is referring to the generation that sees the signs that we've been looking at this morning, beginning in verse 25. The signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, the signs of the, the fear upon the earth and the coming of Jesus. When the people of that generation see those signs, then the series of end times events will occur rapidly. The judgments will not stretch out over generations, will not go on for centuries. It will come to pass swiftly. And therefore, that generation will not pass away until all has taken place. But Jesus also makes clear in verse 33 that he, all these words that he's given, they hold everlasting authority. He says, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. His word is everlasting. The word of the Lord endures forever. And Jesus, therefore, is saying that my words are on par with the Old Testament words. My words are just as authoritative as everything you read in your Bible, Jews. And now for us today, we recognize that Jesus is the authoritative Son of God. Not one detail will be missed. Our Lord and King has declared that he will return to this earth. The end of the age will occur exactly as he has said. Even as the events around this world are tumultuous, we need not fear, church. We need to place our hope upon the appearing of Christ. 
We can trust that God is sovereign in control of all these things. He is in control. He is moving the cosmos to his desired end. He will have the final say. And therefore, we do not fear. Though the nations rage, God in the heaven laughs because he knows what he will do. He knows how he will bring it all to the end. Friends, there's a lot of predictions going on these days, a lot of opinions about what is happening and what things are going to happen and how everything's going to end. Different religions have even different eschatologies about how they believe this world is going to, going to end and what we're, what's going to happen to us. But we as the church of Jesus Christ look to the words of, of the Lord, his authoritative word, and we can be certain about what will come in that future day. We don't need to worry. We don't need to recognize, don't need to think that we're following some sort of fables. We follow the authoritative word of the living God. Amen? Let us find our trust and our hope in him alone. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Oh God, we thank you for this word that reveals so clearly, Lord, what will take place in the end of days. We are sobered, Lord, by the reality that there is great wrath that is stored up for this planet great wrath that is stored up for this world. And Father, our heart's desire is that as many as possible would flee from the wrath to come. That they would turn to Jesus now while there's still time. That they would humble their hearts. And so Lord, we ask that you would please do that by your sovereign power. Father, I pray for us as a church that we would not lose our hope, that we would not lose our joy, that we would not lose our trust and our faith in you. May you keep us grounded on what our Lord has told us and may we look for his return that could be any day to take us home to be with himself. It's in his name we pray, amen.